hit me just the other day before I rolled out of bed one morning. Without you, there would be no sunshine, there would be no rain in season. Without you, I know that I couldn't walk, couldn't talk, couldn't even breathe. I need you more than I need air, more than I need rain. I need sunshine on a summer day. I need you more than I need a home, more than I need food, more than I need these clothes I'm wearing. Greetings. Thank you for joining us on Christian Reconstruction Radio for this time we shall have together. I'm your host, J.S. Lowther, and this is Sola Scriptura. Promoting the law and the gospel to every living creature with an ardent and firm desire to show the perfection of the law of God in every area of life, all to the glory of God and praise His only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Special thanks to our sponsor at the beginning of the show, just to get everybody to know uh, where we, we get our funding from on Christian Reconstruction Radio. Yeah, CR 101 Radio Networks, a Christian Reconstruction Internet radio station that hosts and broadcasts lectures, sermons, and podcasts 24-7. CR101radio.com is where you can go for that. And we're sponsored by GCS Apprenticeship Program, which is dedicated to training the next generation of Christian teachers so they can be inspired and equipped to get involved with the uh, task and honor of being a Christian teacher or owning and operating their own Christian school, gcsapprenticeship.com is where you can find them to check out their services. So we're going to actually look at the news from the last few weeks since our first podcast. This is a bi-weekly um, broadcast at this point, uh, Sola Scriptura is. Um, just don't have the time to dedicate uh, every week to it, or, or I would enjoy doing so. But um, just can't can't pull it off at this time. But um, it's been two weeks since our last podcast. A lot's happened in the world. But this is a great opportunity to take a look at the absolute unlawfulness that is happening in the world and look at it through a scope of biblical reality, looking at it as God would. Because it's important to remember that regardless of what we interface with as Reformed Christians of a theonomic perspective, we are called to keep the glory of God at the forefront of our worldview and see what's going on by the magnifying lens of Scripture. That's exactly what the Bible should be to us. It should be a light to our path. It should be a lamp unto our feet. We should be able to see better because of the Bible. Um, and if we aren't seeing things better, we're doing something wrong we need the scripture to understand what the will of God is on these matters that we see that are very tough to to deal with today, whether it's COVID-19 or this uh, more recent uh, situation we have where rioting's going on in m many major cities and um, the brutality that is uh, alleged to, to be happening, you know, whatever it is that we're looking at, we need to keep a biblical perspective um, in and looking at that, and I think it's great scripture to remind us of the, our attitude that we need to have as Christians, is from the pen of the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, 1 through 2, reading from the King James Version. 
says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service or your logical service is what that means. Uh, be not conformed to this world, Paul tells us. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing or the regeneration of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's great advice for us to have right now because it's confusing in the world. And while many people want to be liberated from the scriptures and religion and God and, and uh, Christianity particularly, um, it's so important to remember that it is our mind that needs to change, our mind that needs to be transformed and that we are not to be conformed to the way the world wants us to, to think, but to go back to the Scripture and to, to ask the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us and to show us the truth that we need to understand. And so, very much so, this is a time that we live in, um, as in every time, really, that we need to walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. We are supposed to be redeeming the time that we are in because the days are evil. Uh, Ephesians 5.17 tells us we are not to be unwise, but we are to be understanding what the will of the Lord is. We are to have a understanding as Christians of what God's will is. And the only way we can understand the will of God is to go to the Bible, go to the scriptures, that is breathed out by God, it's inspired by God, by his Holy Spirit, and profitable for teaching us. It's profitable for reproving us. That's to change us, to tell us we're wrong. So it's profitable for correcting us, to straightening our path. It is um, profitable for training us to be more righteous, to be trained in righteousness. And while we acknowledge that righteousness is imputed to us on a salvific level by Jesus Christ, and that initial sanctification is imputed to us in that same way, we also understand that the Bible has a job to do, that it is the scriptures that will teach us, reprove us, correct us, and train us in the righteousness of God that is an everlasting righteousness. And we need to understand that. Uh, we need to be made Christians that are completely equipped for every good work, according to 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. And where do we go for that wisdom and understanding in the Bible? Where should we go to understand the will of God, what the will of the Lord is, and, and all that, that good instruction, that training uh, that comes from the scriptures? And where do we go to find the wisdom and the understanding of God? Where is it that we are told to go? Well, the Bible says in Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 6, a book not too many Christians of the modern era like to read is the book of Deuteronomy, or any of the Pentateuch for that matter. But uh, as theonomists, we don't find ourselves offended by that at all. At least we better not. Uh, Deuteronomy 4, 5 says, Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord, or Yahweh my God, commanded me, that ye should do so in the land, whether ye go to possess it. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom, this is your understanding. And while we have not as a nation kept the statutes and judgments of God's commandments in the land that he, give, that he has given us, we are utterly at a loss as what wisdom and understanding even is as a whole anymore in this nation. 
Um, we have not, as a nation, kept the statutes of God and his judgments and his commandments as a nation. And so the nation as a whole is lacking in wisdom and understanding. We do not have anything to offer the other nations. We have nothing to offer them. Christianity, which uh, was a light in all of the, the, the nations and the countries of the world that it would go into, at one time is now nothing more than, you know, a form of health care, it seems like, or some kind of helping hand that comes in to, to help you out just to be used. And uh, it's not a wise source of uh, understanding anymore. And there's a sad reality that happens to the people of a nation when they abandon the law of God as it's revealed in Scripture, which is a result of a loss of the fear of God. It has to be recognized that way. When a nation uh, abandons the law of God as it's revealed in Scripture, they have, in fact, lost the fear of God that is before them, which therefore will result in the rejection of God's word as a whole eventually, as, as a, a society at least, and a preference towards sin in autonomy, a preference uh, in wanting sin. The logic is pretty well uh, spelled out in a series of Proverbs that I put together uh, here to share with you. Proverbs 9.10 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Proverbs 14.32 Working through 34 says the wicked is overthrown through his evil doing, but the righteous finds refuge in his death. Wisdom rests in the heart of him that has understanding, but that which is in the midst of fools is made known. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. We see by the constructs here um, being woven together and put together that wickedness is set against righteousness. It's the opposite of it. It's set against righteousness. It's naturally that way. Uh, they are opposed one to another. Righteousness and unrighteousness are opposites. What is just and what is unjust are opposites. And so righteousness and wickedness as well are opposites. And these um, overthrow individuals, according to what we read. They overthrow them, like pushing them right over are throwing them out of their chair, knocking them off their feet. And that makes up nations. Individuals make up nations. And so when individuals are overthrown, the nation, uh, by the evil of their doings, is overthrown as well. But the righteous even find refuge or a safe place, even in their death. They're not overthrown in anything. Those who are righteous and striving for righteousness have not even the fear of death. And so as we see the fear of death prevailing in our society and death in general prevailing in our society, we can recognize that righteousness is also being depleted from our society by seeing that. And so to the one who is confident in imputed righteousness, he is not able to be shaken, we could say, as one of the other Psalms say. Uh, and thus, wisdom rests in his heart, according to the proverb. He has understanding. He has something under him. He has something to stand on, understanding. But a fool's foolishness is in his heart and in his life. Therefore, it is justice and righteousness that has power to exalt a nation. But the 
elation of wickedness by sin is the reproach of any people, which is kind of a, 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 a more studied way to look at what's being said there if you look into the languages. But elation of wickedness, to be elated, to be, to be filled with joy or happiness, overtaken by wickedness that comes by sin is the reproach of any people. And that's what we're finding today. We're finding people who are elated with their wickedness. They're elated by that wickedness that comes by sin. And um, justice and righteousness that has the power to exalt the nation by the word of God, um, by the grace of God, is being eschewed. No one wants it. They don't. They just push it to the side and don't even think about it. And we're living in a time where that's becoming way more um, noticeable, much more easy to notice, especially if you're 30 years old or older, I would think, uh, because things weren't always like this. There was still a similitude of morality that we saw in the world that people tried to sort of kind of keep, quote unquote, normal, normal. And now there is no such thing as normal. And it's it's becoming more that way. Um, we don't know how to respond to anything. And so the wickedness is working its its uh, work on um our understanding and our wisdom. It's just taking it entirely away from us. And we refuse, like a stiff-necked um, beast, we refuse to go to the scriptures and to see that light yoke of Christ that will help us understand the scriptures and give us the Bible and place it on our heart and and say, Lord, what would you have us do so that we can uh, govern this nation in a way that is more peaceful and more uh, wise and more understanding, but we refuse. We will not do it as a people, and it is because of a hard heart and a stiff neck. There's nothing else that you can call it. And that reproach or elation of sin is the fall in the lessening of this nation on uh, tribes of people in this world. All of it uh, stems from the ugly root of that lack of fear of God, that they do not fear God and they will not go to God and ask him what it is that he wants. And sadly, the worst part about it is we have a lack of Christian light and salt that should be there standing in the gap and preaching it to this nation. And so I often think about how we understand God's sovereignty in uh, the giving of faith by grace as a gift to Christians that's uh, oftentimes not coupled with its living intent. You know, so oftentimes um, we have this um, understanding of God's sovereignty. We know how it gives us faith and it comes by grace. It's the gift that's given to us. Um, but it's oftentimes not coupled with living that reality out, living that intent that was built into giving us grace by the work of faith. Um, we just aren't carrying through with being what it is that we're supposed to be. And so, you know, the way I view um, this situation is that God's will is so powerful to a Christian that he will live for Jesus Christ and a summation of the commandments of God as a connected response to his call of faith as he understands it. But it seems that by the language of Scripture, God gives uh, every elect child a choice in his 
creaturely being to progress in sanctification and holy living. There's still a progression that it takes place after um, that grace is given to us through the works of faith, that we still have to progress into the sanctification, the holy living, um, as well as in holy thinking. We have to continue to progress in that. If God were satisfied with our faith in Jesus as nothing more than a heartfelt conviction alone, with no response in our heart, mind, and soul to be exhibited in our strength or might, you know, that's what we do in our life, in this world um, that he's placed us in, we would have perfect obedience and holiness the moment we first believed. And we would have a standard that was universal in our way of life among many of the faithful. And there would be very few, if no, uh, differing walks within the patience of the saints and the confines of them who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ, according to Revelation 14:12. But rather, what we do find is we find differences that show we as believers and saints are to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, as we are very clearly told in the scripture, and that we are um, to give diligence to make our calling and our election sure. And part of this diligence is to add to the simple fear of God that we are given by grace. God uh, imparts the fear of God to us. Uh, God gives that as a gift. That's part of grace that we begin to fear God. We acknowledge we're sinners and we become fearful to um, the wrath of God. And so that fear of God is, in fact, the beginning of wisdom. And after that's done, that simple fear of God, we are then to add to our wisdom and understanding by uh, processing uh, the world by the word of God and to, to progress then into changing ourselves to look more like what the scripture says as individuals, as families, as um, churches, as societies, whatever we're part of, together we should be growing towards the goal of Scripture. And that would be by applying God's standards of righteousness, and we're right back to that righteousness that exalts a nation, that justice to see what a blessed nation whose God is the Lord should look like. And uh, sadly, we're just not seeing a lot of Christians who are willing to, to do that. And so with that thought, let's talk about the news that uh, is a big deal for many, many people as it involves justice. I got me a uh, cup of tea here that I sip on while I'm talking to you because sometimes I get carried away, start to talk kind of excitedly about this this stuff. And so I need something to wet my whistle. Um, but I think it'd be good to just talk about the news that's a big deal right now as it involves justice. And that word social justice and justice of this form and justice of that form is just everywhere right now as it is uh, spoken of concerning uh, this George Floyd and Derek Chauvin, the officer. It's going on. It's also being used in talking about COVID-19, which seems like a thing of the past now already. Um, we just don't really know what that means, though, but that justice should be for a Christian impingent upon the righteousness of God. It's actually uh, entirely related to the same Greek word in Scripture when we read it. Um, and, you know, we're looking at these times where we have property damage going on. Uh, we have 
these ideas of, of things that involve hate and riots that are going on throughout the U.S. now and our concerns there. And to be honest with you, any issue we seek to look at through the scope of the law of God in this present day society is likened unto a ball of string that has been thrown into a kid's toy box loosely wound up. Um, so just, you know, I think if you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. But the issues that we seek to look at through the scope of the law of God in this present day society, it's just like you took that like a ball, a ball of string or ball of yarn and you checked it into your kid's toy box who has all these toys in there just kind of, you know, for him to pull out and play with. And when you go in there, it's just wrapped up around everything, especially if he's been playing with it. And and it's wrapped around everything. And so how in the world do you get it unwrapped is the, the question. You know, where do you start? Um, what I'd say is you dump it all out. At least that's my procedure. Uh, <laughs> I dump it all out. And in the process, uh, you even may get out some scissors and snip the thread and uh, tie it back together here and there. If you if you need it in a, in a hole, it depends on what you're using it for, right? Um, but you need to be able to find the end of it eventually and get it unwrapped from everything. And if you're wanting to keep it together, then you're going to have to tie it back together. And so to understand divine wisdom and understanding in this mess is not an easy task in this world. No doubt about it. Um, it, it's it's wrapped around everything. And so what we're going to start to see, I think, in looking at things and trying to do it as systematically as possible is seeing how we just have a huge problem in the foundations of even considering these matters. I know the subject we're about to talk about is, um, you know, we're supposed to walk on eggshells because of all the political and racial tension and all this other stuff that's going on. Uh, on top of not knowing who to believe with the media and all the garbage that's going on there. So I'm going to um, start with uh, the complaint, the actual complaint of the the police report, just to look at this issue between George Floyd and um, Derek Chauvin. It's actually uh, on his complaint um, where it spells out the situation. And the only reason I'm doing this is because we have no other place to go for evidence for what's what's happening in order to start unraveling this this um, ball. And I think what's going to be noticed it, right away is that you cannot assume from the worldview we come into it at in this world that we know how to start with this. You know, looking for the end of the thread is almost impossible. And so just like the, the ball of yarn in the kid's toy box, there are times you're going to have to snip it in the middle, pull it apart, and at the end tie it back together again and, and things like that. And so, you know, there's also a news report that I was going to read, but I think it'd be best to just just kind of stick with the, uh, with the report that happened here, the complaint as it is called. And then we will just move on um, by looking at the law of God and uh, trying to to ask the right questions to have uh, these types of, of issues answered so that we can kind of just think about it a little bit more clearly 
in regards to what the scripture would say about it. And so let me pull this up here. You'll hear me clicking my mouse there in the background, looking at my computer. And so Eric Michael Chauvin uh, said to be the defendant here. It says the complainant submits this complaint to the court and states that there is probable cause to believe defendant committed the following offenses. And so it gives us uh, his first count, his second count. Um, and, you know, they're going to they're going to give this guy prison time, which we'll discuss that a little bit. Um, we're going to look at the state of probable cause on the report. It says on May the 25th of 2020, someone called 911 and reported that a man bought merchandise from Cup Foods, gives the address in Minneapolis, Minnesota, with a counterfeit $20 bill. Now, we're going to focus on that a little bit. Counterfeit $20 bill um, in reference to a Federal Reserve note, um, you know, paper money. And at 8.08 p.m., Minneapolis Police Department officers uh, arrived with their body cameras on, and the officers learned from the store uh, personnel, the man who passed the counterfeit 20 was parked in a car around the corner from the store. And so um, it says here that the uh, the officers approached the car. Uh, the police were on the driver's side. You know, the three people were in the car. George, George Floyd was one of them. He's on the driver's seat. Uh, he's an adult male uh, in the passenger seat. There's also a girl there, a woman, and the Officer begins speaking to the guy, um, directs him to show him his hands. He finally shows him his hands. The cop puts his gun away. That sort of thing takes place. Um, says once Mr. Floyd was handcuffed, and I'm sorry, let me skip something here. While Officer Kung uh, was speaking with the front seat passenger officer lane ordered Mr. Floyd out of the car, put his hands on Mr. Floyd and pulled him out of the car. Officer Lane's lane handcuffed Mr. Floyd. Mr. Floyd active, actively resisted being handcuffed. So he actually fought the handcuffs. Uh, once he was handcuffed, he became compliant and he walked with the officer to the sidewalk. He sat on the ground at officer lane's uh, direction in a, uh, conversation that lasted just under two minutes. Officer Lang asked Mr. Floyd for his name and identification. Officer Lang asked Mr. Floyd if he was on anything, referring to drugs or alcohol, and explained that he was arresting him for passing the counterfeit currency. And so there it is again. He's going to arrest him for passing the counterfeit currency. Officer Kung and Lane, these are two officers before the man that they're prosecuting, stood Mr. Floyd up, attempted to walk him to the squad car, and he stiffened up, Mr. Floyd stiffens up, fell, falls to the ground, and told the officers he's claustrophobic. And so at this point, this is where the defendant, um, the guy who, the, the white guy who's in trouble, Officer Derek Chauvin, um, comes in, and another cop, Tao Thoa, um, then arrived in a separate squad car. The officer made several attempts to get Mr. Floyd in the back seat of the squad uh, car from the driver's side. Mr. Floyd did not voluntarily get in the car, and he struggled with the officers by intentionally falling down, 
saying he was not going in the car and refusing to stand still. Mr. Floyd is over six feet tall and weighs more than 200 pounds. And so the point's being made that it's pretty tough to, to get them to do what you're wanting them to do. And so while standing outside the car, Mr. Floyd began saying and repeating that he could not breathe. So we see he's in the car at this point saying this, which is, the, you know, the big catch slogan right now going on that, uh, that all of these rioters are using or reciting this. And the defendant went to the passenger side. He tried to get Mr. Floyd into the car from that side and Lane and Kung assisted. The defendant pulled Mr. Floyd out of the passenger side of the squad car at 8.19 p.m. Mr. Floyd went to the ground face down, still handcuffed. Kung held Mr. Floyd back. Lane held his legs. The defendant placed his left knee in the area. This is the incident that is causing all the uproar. And Mr. Floyd's head and neck. Mr. Floyd said, I can't breathe multiple times, which is something he already said in the car, just pointing it out. And then he started to say, Mama and please as well. The defendant and the other two officers stayed in their positions. Uh, eventually, we're told that the other policemen, the officers, said maybe they should roll them over. They didn't. Um, it says at 825, the video appears to show Mr. Floyd ceasing to breathe or speak. Lane said, want to roll him on his side. Kung checked Mr. Floyd's right wrist for a pulse and said, I can't find one. Uh, the officers moved from their position. The defendant removed his knee from Mr. Floyd's neck and the ambulance and emergency medical personnel arrived and officers placed Mr. Floyd on a gurney. And that's basically what happened. Um, at the very end, it says that the Hennepin County Medical Examiner conduct, uh, conducted Mr. Floyd's autopsy on May the 26th, and the full report is uh, still pending, but the examiner has made the following preliminary findings. The autopsy revealed that no physical findings that support diagnosis of traumatic asphyxiation or strangulation. And it says right there, Mr. Floyd had underlying health conditions, including coronary artery disease, hypertensive heart disease, the combined effects of Mr. Floyd being restrained by the police, his underlying health conditions, and any potential intoxicants in his system likely to contribute to his death. The defendant had his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck for more than eight minutes. In total, two minutes and 53 seconds of this was after Mr. Floyd was non-responsive. Police are trained that this type of restraint with a subject in a prone position is inherently dangerous. So, I already know that a lot of this is um, touchy. And, uh, you know, it um, it's an unfortunate situation that's taken place. But the question we have to ask is, what does... The Bible say about this situation. What happened here? What is the actual um, way in which we should view what happened, and and what is it exactly that um, the Lord would um, have us understand by applying His law to the subject, so that we can think clearly about it and understand it. You know, I'd start out by saying that because everybody wants to go to the black-white tension that's going on, that uh, not only are the office, you know, some of the officers not Caucasian, they're not white, um, they're Asian, 
Um, and on top of that, you know, the Bible, as it deals with justice in this situation, very clearly tells us that in laws of this type, in these types of situations, the stranger and the homeborn. So even if you want to apply racial categorization or you want to apply national differences or whatever you want to call it, um, the stranger would be treated just as fairly as the homeborn would be in these situations. Uh, no extra force would be added or anything like that. So, um, you know, we can't even really apply the racial aspect at this point in looking at this from a biblical model and looking at the situation that's going on here, like everyone seems to be doing right now, uh, broadly everyone. And so, in order to untie this ball of string, we're going to have to try and find an end here or a place to start. And so let's ask the question that caused the response. Um, let's, let's ask the question. Uh, the report says that Floyd passed counterfeit money or bogus money. Let's just look at that aspect now and ask the question, is this unlawful? Is that an unlawful thing to do? Was this lawful? Was was a um, was it a lawful thing according to God's law uh, for this man to pass bogus money, counterfeit money, uh, counterfeit bills? Um, and the police dispatch that was called was it was it right for someone to call the police? Is that a biblically lawful thing to do? And what was done? Uh, the man was under arrest. The man was arrested. Was that lawful? Is it is it lawful for a policeman or an officer in a biblical scenario to arrest a man and to detain him? And in order to uh, just ascertain the answer to this issue, we have to recognize that by judging this matter in a biblical way, by a biblical standard, we have a fundamental difference in worldview that we must um, recognize. You know, that is that a lawful society, regardless of who the men are, their relationship to one another societally, so stranger, homeborn, whatever, it doesn't matter. Uh, the biblical commonwealth and nation of Israel, as we have as our example, is set upon the word of God as its absolute rule of law. Uh, whereas the current American model of civil, civil government, as we have it, is established upon uh, ignorance of, a, of an ideal of objective truth right now. We, we do not know what it is. We have nothing to call objective truth. That's demonstrated from all the stuff that we have seen uh, regarding transgenderism and all kind of other things. People don't know what men and women are anymore, uh, for crying out loud. Um, and so there is no ideal of objective truth Whereas in a biblical model, the Bible is the objective truth. The law of God is the objective truth. And what we're seeing in America is because the American government standard is constituted upon the whim and will of the people now. And it's done so as men and not as regenerate men or godly men. It's just done on being a human uh, or a creature. Uh, the people of the constitutional concept as we now have it uh, – perhaps not as it was in the 1700s, is constituted of men as men, those that have no relationship to Almighty God the Creator. 
Okay, just looking at man as man as the source for objective truth well, is, is confusing enough. Um, and when you look at man as having no connection or, or relationship to the almighty God, the creator, there's nothing to found truth on anymore. It, it fundamentally undermines the whole underpinnings of justice. And thus, as this is the predominant federation of the people of the United States as a country, the constituted mentality rules among the majority of the masses of people. The, the constituted mentality is the rule among the majority of the demos. Um, with this mentality reigning, that is that people govern because they are people in opposition to people endowed by God to govern, a fundamental disjunction occurs in the people. Okay, you can't um, have the, the mentality reign that people govern just because they are people. Um, even in the Constitution of the United States, it states that people endowed by God to govern. Um, if you don't recognize that there are, there's an endowment by the Creator to do certain things, um, there's a complete different form of government that proceeds out of it once you remove that the, the endowment of the Creator, the will of God, um, is what it should just say directly, um, happens. And so this is namely that the rule of law is having its source in divine truth and justice made known to men by the objective revelation of the God of the Bible is obliterated from the onset of examining any matter without starting from an endowment of the creator. If you don't start with the revelation of God and God revealing himself to man, you end up at two completely different conclusions from the onset. You start with presuppositions that are completely um, different. That is that the God of the Bible has a law, and it is the law that determines good and evil, right and wrong, uh, wickedness, and you know sin, justice, and injustice. And so we as Christians have an object for what truth should be. We as those who believe we've been endowed by our Creator, um, we have an object of truth, whereas those who are created uh, and, and recognize themselves as creatures, and that's all they are, not endowed by a creator, you have a government that cannot go back to a source for its objective truth. It only has man to go by, man that's endowed with himself, not by a creator. And so that one fundamental difference right there in understanding the two worldviews is incredibly important to notice from the onset because we're going to go back to the Bible and then looking at this, and others would not. They're going to reason it out or think about it or philosophy or emotion or whatever it is, and that's going to create a big problem. And so in this case, see the situation that brought George Floyd and Derek Chauvin together, and those names together as they're going to be memorialized from here on out. It was an attempt, according to the complaint that we read, of Floyd passing um, counterfeit bills, bogus money. And because the one who received what they perceived to be bogus or counterfeit was offended morally, we have to recognize that in our first question that we're asking. 
Um, was it wrong? You know, the first question that we asked is, uh, was it wrong for this man to counterfeit money or and, and to pass it or whoever counterfeited it? Uh, is it wrong to do so? Is it wrong to do that? And, you know, the one who receives the counterfeiter, the bogus, the, the, the false money, was offended morally. They were stolen from, essentially. And so that is a moral thing that is physical. It's mental. They believed an injustice had occurred. Okay, so they used their their uh, their endowment and realized that something had been taken from them wrongfully, and they wanted some form of justice, and they knew injustice had occurred, and so they called upon the government, an officer of the modern law, and its government. So that's when the police arrived to help the offended party. You know, that's who calls them. If they didn't care that they had received counterfeit money, they wouldn't have called the police if they were not morally felt like they were offended. And so, you know, in a biblical commonwealth, money would not be printed as we have it today. So, you know, we have our first biblical uh, difference. It's a the disjunction again occurs, you know. So recognizing these two points that we're at. In this situation, you have someone who's morally offended. Someone has taken something from another. They feel like something's been taken away from them, so they can call on someone who's going to help them restore justice. And so we recognize right away that they are utilizing a a, a God-centered worldview in some way to realize there is something immoral about having pay, you know this fake money. I mean, they took the bill, so why don't they just continue to pass it? Well, eventually, whoever is going to get caught, there's something that keeps them from wanting to continue this situation. They don't want to be the last one holding the fake bill who gets caught, like George Floyd was. Okay, whether he made it or he didn't, we don't know. All we know is that there was a moral assault that took place inside of a person that caused them to want justice. And so that takes us to the whole idea of, is it wrong to do that? Is it wrong to print money? Is it wrong to print a counterfeit piece of money? And so what does the Bible even say about it? And in a biblical commonwealth, what you'd find in the Bible is money would not be able to be printed as we have it today. As a matter of fact, the modern constitutional government, as it is at least in part recognized as linked to the morality of the God of the Bible, has in, in place laws that are regularly violated by the usurping powers that now be of this present day constitutional government that are unrelated to God and to the God of Scripture, which law says Gold, silver, and copper are the monies to be used in God's kingdom. And so we have a law in the Bible that specifically recognizes um, lawful money. Uh, the law of God ordains a specific money or currency um, and none other as a substance, as as being made of a substance and not of being printed paper. And so that is that gold, silver, and copper is to be regulated 
by a fed, federal agency of government that would enforce um, just weights and measures concerning this particular situation. And so in a biblical scenario, what we have is a complete difference in money also, um, whereas in our modern government, we're using paper. In Leviticus 19, 35 through 36, we're told, ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment in meat yard, in weight, or in measure. Just balances, just weights, and a just ephah, just hen shall you have, for I am the Lord your God. And so in Deuteronomy 25, 13 through 16, we also read, you shall not have in your bag a diverse weights, a great and a small. You shall not have in your house diverse measures, a great and a small. But you shall have a perfect and a just weight, a perfect and a just measure. You shall have that your days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord your God has given thee. For all that do such are, not, are uh, such things, and all that do unrighteously are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. And so we see that the Bible, in dealing with money in shekels, which is nothing more than a weight measurement, and the word money in the Bible is the word for silver, um, kesef is the Hebrew word for silver, we see substance money, substantial money. We do not see paper money. And so in the biblical scenario and asking ourselves, can you counterfeit money? Because money, money is made of the substance. Money and silver are synonyms. Um, gold can also be used at times. But in dealing with substance, if you are not giving a person what you have agreed to give them, that you're calling money, then it would be theft. You'd be stealing from them. You'd be bearing a false witness, and then you would be stealing from them. And so in those Bible laws, when you give a person a piece of silver or gold, as we see in the incident for, of uh, Abraham, for instance, um, weighing out the silver for the field of Machpelah where he buries his wife, uh, he weighs it out uh, with a, a weight current with the merchants, and he pays in substance. He pays in substance by a just weight and a just measure. He pays every bit of it. And so we know biblically that money is not ever even made of paper. So the way that we do things today with bills of credit, which is what exactly it's talking about, says a counterfeit bill – we're having to compare apples and oranges again. <laughs> well, we're actually having to compare apples to receipts for apples because it's not substance at all. And so the bills of credit we use today, we call money or paper money, that at one time were promises to pay real measures of money. At one time in the United States, those bills was a bill for the bank to pay you your gold, silver, or copper that we used to use in the United States before 1965 for silver, and uh, in the 30s when gold was, was taken out of circulation. And so at one time, those bills were bills for payment, and that's why we call them bills to this day, to pay real money in this in this country um, and to have a just weight and measure of it. Um, they are even prohibited. Bills of credit are prohibited by the very government that allows its circulation. Um, not formally, because this constituted government we live under right now in 2020 is completely different than the one that we lived under in, you know, the 1770s, 80s, 90s, 1800s, um, it, while still operating on the same document, so to speak. 
there are things about it that are just fund- fundamentally different on its foundation. It's been completely undermined and changed. And so there is actually laws, and I'm going to read a few of them, on the books that tells us that it is illegal for the circulation, it is unlawful, unconstitutional, uh, if you will, for circulating and creating um, money out of paper, bills of credit. And thus, this creates our next disjunction on the on the modern issue we are entertaining in this realm of Bible law versus the modern day. I want to read out of the U.S. Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, Paragraph 5. It says, The Congress shall have power to coin money, regulate the value thereof, and of foreign coin, and to fix the standard of weights and measures. I'm also going to read out of uh, Section 10. No state shall coin money, emit bills of credit, make anything but gold and silver coin a tender and payment of debts. I'm also going to read out of the Coinage Act of April 2nd, 1792, Section 19. Be it enacted that if any of the gold or silver coin shall be debased or made worse, every such treasury officer or person who shall commit said offense shall be deemed guilty of felony and shall suffer death. That's the Coinage Act of April 2nd, 1792. Um, <laughs> it, um, it legislates death. Uh, for the violation of what the Constitution mentions in Article 1, Section 8, Paragraph 5, and Section 10 on the creation of bills of credit. And so as we are looking at this modern situation, we are seeing a disjunction. We're seeing a complete disunity in the biblical model versus the the charge that's even being brought against Mr. Floyd here on this situation. Um, and so, having read from the law of God um, and the constituted government of the United States that is operating right now, supposedly, we can very clearly see uh, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 1, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. And Proverbs sixteen eleven. A just weight and balance are the Lord's. All the weights of the bag are his work. And so the best thing I can say about this is a government that violates its own law and prosecutes its citizens or strangers, travelers, foreigners, whatever, for doing the same as they do, that is by um, emitting (laughs) bills of credit uh, that are not worth anything, they're substanceless, um, has no basis for justice to argue from. They cannot argue uh, from any source of right or righteousness, justice. Um, Rather, all it has left is its force and its force by its arms. Its guns, basically, is all it has left to argue from is we have the right to print the money, uh, even though our own law says we're not allowed to print bills of credit. Uh, Everyone uses them. And uh, this is what we do, and so we defend it with our guns. 
Um, and we have laws that say you can't do it because people are so confused. So, you know, all in all, um, it's very hard to, to apply that, um, logic though to this situation. But what it does is it reveals in a study of the law something that every lawyer should realize when they are asking the question of, of, um, counterfeiting, um, what is the moral basis this is based on? And that's the same thing we're going to have to do is we're going to have to jump past the fact that the government is actively violating the law of God, the law of its own constitution, its own coinage act of 1792 and ignore that because there's nothing we can do about it. We can't force the government to uh, take back all of the uh, paper money in circulation, especially after just a few weeks ago, um, they taught Mr. Floyd and Mr. Um, Chauvin alike and everyone else, for that matter, that the government has the power to create trillions of quote-unquote dollars out of thin air if they so feel like it. And so just a few uh, weeks or a month prior to this scenario, the government produced unlawful money uh, ad nauseum so, and gave it away unlawfully, which is a subject I'm not going to go into. But how is it that you could expect your citizenry to um, understand justice of money, justice on this subject, when we have a government that can do this at whim? I mean, while we may not understand fully the moral issues behind this as it derives from the law of God, within everyone, there is a, we'll call it subconscious understanding that this is money that's just being created to be given away. And so if the government can just create money and give it away, then why can't the people? I think that's the ultimate question every child has when they start um, thinking about money as a piece of paper. At least it's something I thought about as a young child. And so, you know, Second Samuel 23, 3 uh, puts what I'm trying to say much better than I do. It says, he that rules over men must be just ruling in the fear of God. And so God told David, he that rules over men must be just or righteous, ruling in the fear of God. And since the rulers, those who are the ones with the guns, um, who are supposed to be looking out for the justice and the moral well-being of the people, um, they are not ruling justly by creating false money. And so they have set the stage for propagating this thing that has happened. But even with that being said, we still cannot say that nothing wrong was done. And so, you know, the next question that we would have to ask is that within the scenario that is understood between the common citizenry in the United States, as you and I deal with paper money all the time, we all pay our taxes in it, we all go to the grocery store and use it, we are all complicit in a sense in this unlawful activity because the country we live in, the nation that we live in, or we are part of, is complicit in it, and it's all around us. And so within that scenario, is there something wrong? It can't be called intrinsically wrong, but is there something wrong morally with giving a 
bad um, bill, a false bill, whatever you want to call it, a false Federal Reserve note, since the Federal Reserve is the ones, the bank who is supposed to give you your gold and silver and copper in redemption for that piece of paper, but they don't. They now just emit more bills of credit in violation of the law, um, and Congress gives them power to do so. Uh, is there anything wrong with replicating that? And the question then has to be asked, why is it that someone felt morally offended for this act action? And we have to ignore the hypocrisy of the scenario I just uncovered for you from the law of God, from the Constitution, from the Coinage Act, in order to answer the question. But at least we have a better understanding now of Bible law just by asking that question and digging into the intrinsic natural um, roots that the law speaks of and talks to us about for us to consider. And so these two issues take us to the question of having to overlook the hypocrisy of the government's printing of unlawful money itself and that in relationship to if Floyd did or did not print the bogus notes, counterfeit bills that he was witnessed um, having by the receiver of the money uh, to have passed as it were a bill from the Federal Reserve, a Federal Reserve note, and to now look at the response of the officers and and looking at how they responded to it. So in order to keep our minds on the perceived and actual offense, we must realize that society does put trust in Federal Reserve notes as paper money, though they're unlawful. Thus, we will consider the FRN, paper money, as a trade instrument. I'm not going to call it money because of what I just laid down. It would be like I'm lying to you. But it's a trade instrument. There's no doubt about it. We trade with it. We pay things for it. We go to the grocery store with it. We pay our taxes in it, and so on and so forth. And so we as Americans know how this system works. Um, we understand it. And so and we understand what we expect from another person and what they expect of us in the payer-payee, buyer-seller relationship. And so it is common practice for the police to handcuff and detain someone suspected of certain crimes, and this treatment can be harsh. Um, to me, the very idea of locking me up um, by the use of handcuffs is a harsh idea, uh, you know, because it's going to be against my will. I don't want handcuffed at all. But when um, one is an immoral person, the person may do more immoral things such as obstruct justice. Stop justice from happening. Stop morality from seeking its justice. And so more harsh restraint and detention would be had for these. And we do have biblical scenario also in Bible law that establishes that we have biblical reason to detain or arrest a person, put them in custody or ward is what it's called in the King James Version. And we can find that in two examples. One is of a man who blasphemes God, and another is one who broke the Sabbath in Leviticus 24.12 and Numbers 15.34. We're told in both situations that the man was put in ward, um, or he was arrested, and then the people inquired 
as to what the law said about what had happened. And so it seems logical that in such a case where one is not known to be guilty or innocent, but a witness, that would be the person receiving the counterfeit bill, stands up against the person that a form of detention or arrest by a government force would be a biblical case. It would be biblically accurate to do so. It would be allowed. And thus, one would be in need of being in charge of that detention. There would have to be an officer, so to speak, that would be in charge of that detention. Perhaps we would call this man an officer. Maybe we wouldn't. But that's who we have in our scenario, in our scenarios today and in the scenario we're considering. But all this man's job should be is to collect the evidence to bring to those who are in judgment the judge and to arrange for the testimony of the accused and the accuser to be presented. After this, the man um, is unquestionably released until his hearing, unless he's a violent person, which in this case I don't know if we could say that that was the case. And when his hearing or his trial, which is a hearing is just to get more evidence for the trial, um, where he would be uh, proven to be guilty or perhaps he may even admit to being guilty. And so whatever laws apply to his lawful punishment would then be forced upon him to pay restitution to his victim. And if not, um, if there's not enough evidence um, and it proves uh, that he is not guilty, then of course he would be entirely released and, and let go. Um, so, you know, there is a case for him being detained. And so the arrest, as we call it, of innocent men will happen because of this. But what is the alternative is the question. What do we have as an alternative? Biblically, I don't think we have an alternative to just let someone go free. Unless, of course... Um, you know, you use some extreme examples like the city of refuge or something like that and liken it unto a prison system or something to that effect, which even in that situation, you know, what we're dealing with here is not a man who accidentally kills somebody. We're dealing with a man who um, is suspected. We can't even say that he did unless he admitted to it. And we don't know about it <clears throat> to the officers, but he's suspected of passing a counterfeit bill and knowingly, willfully doing so. And so, you know, we have to ask... Should we allow um, this type of treatment for this type of crime? Is that the correct response? And, and undoubtedly, if the person is not complying with justice, and so we have this charge that we find um, time and again, it's always being you know used on on uh, whatever police show you might watch, or at least when I was a kid, what what people watched. Um, God only knows the kind of stuff that would be on television now about that. I don't even have a TV, thank God. Uh, wouldn't let one in my home uh, for any sum for the children or myself to have to endure. It's like piping sewage right into the home. Anyhow, on a rabbit trail there, um, <clears throat> back when I was a kid and there was uh, shows on television about uh, um, police and what they did, they would oftentimes talk about the obstruction of justice. And so if one is obstructing just justice, if one is not allowing the other who is morally offended to get to the bottom of the offense, because this person 
had been stolen from by this false witness of a counterfeit piece of money. Well, it's a false witness of a of money is what it was. And on top of that, it's theft. And so if Floyd falsified a bill or you know a Federal Reserve note, a tr- this trade instrument that we all put our trust in, that is, he made a false trade instrument that looked um, and deceived the seller. He's guilty of doing so, and he is subject to the principle of restitution. <clears throat> now, on the other hand, maybe he got it from the bank. Maybe he went to the grocery store and bought something, and that was given to him in change, and it's been passed to him. Whatever the case is, we don't know. The point is, though, is that in his arrest, he fought the officer. Is it because this felt unjust to him that he was being arrested? Um, we don't we don't know. And so there is a very hard line there to understand. It's a, it, you know, in our society, especially. How is it one should respond to unjust treatment in this way? Let's let's suppose Mr. Floyd did not counterfeit it and he just received his change. He went to go buy himself whatever he bought and passed the bill not knowing. And then next thing you know, he's arrested for it. and He doesn't think he's done anything wrong. It would be pretty tough. I think everybody should know it would you know to think it'd be pretty tough to sit still and uh, let someone arrest you. And, you know, know you're innocent. But at the same time, not helping the person behind the counter who was just stolen from by that false bill, while you have the substance of something to eat or or whatever you bought in your hand, um, it needs to be realized that you should help with determining the justice. You should help with uh, the justice of this situation. And so we don't find... Mr. Floyd helping with the justice of the situation, but at the same time, we don't know why that is. You know, there's no nothing that you can do to um, help yourself understand why it is that he acted in the way that he did at this point. And so, biblically, we can see a case for arrest, and we can see a case for determining justice, um, but because we don't know the intent behind it, you can't make an absolute assertion. But let's assume we find the person, whether it be Mr. Floyd or whether it is someone else, that did create this false witness of a trade instrument, a false witness of a Federal Reserve note or a dollar bill. Um, What is it that would be done to the person who had done this? What is the justice in the matter? How severe of a punishment would it be? Should we put him in prison for 25 years? Um, what is it? You know, according to the Coinage Act, if a person tried to debase the the uh, coin, the gold, silver, or, or copper coin, uh, particularly the gold and the silver, um, they were punished by death. This was a death penalty offense. This is a big deal um for that and so that's because it's debasing the coinage of the united states though that is a whole national uh deal is it the same thing in this scenario well i suppose if you found a counterfeiting operation that was intentionally printing uh false trade instruments to circulate them into the society in order to 
inflate the economy and to debase the economy is, as it is working on those trade instruments, you may be able to make a case for a death penalty offense for the counterfeiter. But considering we're dealing with an individual that passed one $20 bill, and let's say you just find a guy who's got a great printer and certain paper and he's able to do this kind of thing, what is it that you would do to that individual? We'll just look at it from that scenario. And if you go to Deuteronomy 19, 19, you see a principle of Scripture about false witness. And that's what this is. It's a form of false witness and theft. And so it says, Then they shall do unto him, the, the false witness that is, as he had thought to have done. Okay, so thus in desiring to steal by the falsification, a case must first be made of what he had thought to do. And in this case, it would be theft. It would be take something for something of no value. He wanted to have something uh, to himself. And so a case must be made for the theft, wherein the law of God teaches these principles of restitution. And so Exodus 22, 4, going to verse 7, says, If the theft be certainly found in his hand, alive, so dealing with an animal, whether it's an ox or an ass, a sheep, he shall restore it double. If a man shall cause a field or a vineyard to be eaten, and shall put in his beast, and shall feed in another man's field, of the best of his own field, and of the best of his own vineyard, shall he make restitution. We're seeing restitution, restore, over and over again. That's the biblical principle. Verse 6 says, If fire would break out and catch in thorns, so that the stacks of corn or standing corn of field be consumed therewith, he that kindled the fire shall surely make restitution. So restitution. Seven, if a man shall deliver unto his neighbor money or stuff, that actually silver or stuff to keep, and it be stolen out of the man's house, if the thief be found, let him pay double. And I think seven is going to make the best case for what we're talking about. So he had, you know, thought to steal whoever it was, who originally passed this off they were their intention was a steal and we see the principle of a society that's idea of justice is in the harmed party being restituted having restoration given to them or being paid back as we would say it and so in the case of theft we see a payment of double to the victim um in the case of accidental theft such as a fire or one's mindless beast eating another one's stuff, we see singular restitution. So we have a double restitution to the victim under theft. Then we see this accidental theft that you didn't really steal. Your animal ate something or fire just happened to catch and it burned your neighbor's stuff up. You still have to pay him back. Okay? And so if it was accidental or it was not, you would have a case for whether it was singular or whether it was to be paid back double. So if the person admits to or is proven to by witnesses that he had created this money with the intention to steal this false money, that is, this false bill, um, this counterfeit $20 bill, to steal from another person, um, you would have a case for double. Whereas in the case of accident, he received it and he didn't create it, but he passed it. You still owe the person the original $20 you would have paid them for your cup of, 
of soup or whatever it is you're buying. Um, and, and so there's no, no matter what restitution should be paid, even though you were robbed from, you still got the cup of soup. And so you are not allowed to pass on the theft, though you were stolen from, to the next person. Okay? Unlike what's being done with the paper money in our government today, uh, we continue to all pass this theft on to one another until eventually this paper money doesn't work anymore. And um, so at some point, um, the man is going to be found, and they're going to be made to pay double on a government level, uh, if not worse, that stole from the people, the substance. But in the case of counterfeiting and stealing from somebody on a more singular level, what is right is still, what is righteous, what is just is still owed to the one that you receive something from. And so these punishments are designed to make sure someone is paid back. And so in the case of willful theft, as in making a false trade instrument and passing it to get stuff, this is theft and it's subject to pay double. And because the victim of this theft was also going to ignorantly give this false witness of a trade instrument to another as change or to buy something from another person, it seems likely that the principle of false witness would demand not only the double payment, but as he had thought to have done, would be added to the theft. To be added. And then so perhaps, and I'm just speaking as a hypothetical, um, it would be added to the restituted fine. That is a payment of triple or quadruple even, as the law would seem to imply that if one would pass a false instrument ignorantly or accidentally, only a singular payment of restitution uh, w should just, you know, justly follow. Um, thus, this too would be added to the double lawfully owed amount. I hope that makes sense. Um, the If a person desired to steal from another person, because they thought to have done that, they don't only pay the restitution, but what they thought to have done would also be added to it, is, is what I'm trying to point out. And so, you know, a person would know what they're in for in a biblical society because they would know restitution is the goal. They wouldn't be afraid and thereby creating the scenario of fear of being arrested and fear of what the cops are going to do and fear of if you're going to go to jail and what you're going to go to jail for and how long you're going to go to jail for, this fear would not even exist because you would know restitution is going to be the resolve of this situation under a biblical justice, a biblical society. And so I don't think you would have the fear and the apprehension of the people being arrested for the evidence to figure out the case in a biblical society, anything like we have today where justice or what they call justice is unknown. Who knows what you're going to get? You could get 25 years in jail and in a, um, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> a cellmate named Bubba. I mean, you know, who knows what you're going to end up with in this society that we live in. And we just you know, have created a monster out of this situation. Not only has the government not ruled um, justly, 
in the fear of God and thereby created a standard where counterfeiting doesn't even seem like a big deal. Debasing the currency doesn't seem like a big deal because it's already debased to begin with. And so printing money isn't a big deal because the government can print it whenever it wants to. Why can't we? And we have all this this playing in our subconscious uh, moral morality, moral understanding that clouds everything up. But on top of that, because restitution of the person who was morally injured, who felt an injustice was done to them, is not the focus of the law of the modern world that we live in. It creates a lot of apprehension. And so we can't even say if Mr. Floyd was not complying with the officer because he was truly claustrophobic or whatever. Maybe he's on drugs. Who knows what the case is? We can't even know what it is because he doesn't even know what he's going to be punished with. And if a thorough investigation will be done, and even if you were falsely accused, let's say false accusation took place in this case, and you are Mr. Floyd and you're falsely accused, and you're going to pay triple. This is a counterfeit $20 bill. The man went in and bought, let's say, a cup of soup. Uh, or a few cups of soup that equated to $20 to make it simple. And so he was falsely accused. Somebody falsely witnesses against him and says, yep, he did it. I saw him print it himself, whatever. Um, the most he's going to pay is 60 or $80 to the wronged party, to the person that he bought the cup of soup from. That's under a false witness. Under an accident, he would just give them the $20. And then the officers would conduct a more thorough investigation to find out who is circulating the false trade instruments. You see the point. The, the punishment, because it is not about restitution, makes so much worse a society to live in. So much more apprehension. This is not a problem of race at this at this junction in the conversation this is not even a question of um social standing or, or anything like we're talking about anything like these riots are going on about um which no matter how you want to chalk this up uh you know the riots that are going on right now are wrong they're they're absolutely wrong they're sinful the people that are involved in them should be severely punished for destroying property by the law of restitution which i must add if a person does not have the ability to pay restitution do you know what the law says the law of god that is says should be done it's not that they'll be thrown in prison for 25 years it's not that they'll be um you know whipped severely or something with chains the law of God says they will pay restitution, and if they can't pay it, they will be sold for their theft. They will be sold for the destruction of property. They will be made into a slave, a servant, until that debt is paid, and they will pay to the utmost farthing. They will pay to the last penny, okay, because they destroyed property. The law is always about restitution. Well, let's deal with the last situation. Did Officer Ch Chauvin... Uh, the, the great man of sin in the media right now, did he murder George Floyd? Well, I don't think that we can actually speak on that subject. But what I think we can speak on is that the law 
speaks of two types of murder, what we normally call manslaughter and what we call murder. And that if a man did not have evil intent for another person in his heart and seek to kill them, then it is manslaughter, which looks like that is the exact charge that they're going to, to aim for. Um, and in that case, there is a situation called the Avenger of Blood. And the Avenger of Blood it would be the brother or the nearest kinsman to the person who was harmed. And if he sought to take vengeance on Mr. Chauvin personally, or to have him brought before um, some form of um, family judgment, there's a, a case to be made out of the law of God that George Floyd's kinsman, his brother, or whoever, if he killed the person who accidentally killed him, that the law would not punish, the law of God, that is, would not punish him for doing so because his rage was in him. However, on the other hand, Derek Chauvin is now in the uh, is in jail. He's sort of kind of in like a city of refuge. He's kind of being kept away so no one can do that to him so he can come to trial. But when he finally comes to trial, he's going to be living in prison. And the worst part about all this is all of the stuff going on in the media and all of the things that are happening right now are painting him to be a murderer with intent racial intent that he wanted to kill a person just because they were black. And there's absolutely no proof of that as what we have seen so far. Maybe there is, and I don't know about it. But if he did not hate this man in his heart in the past, and no proof of hate can be shown, it was an accident. And if it's an accident, all of these people who are destroying third-party interests third-party property, people that have no connection to this situation whatsoever are losing their businesses, they're losing their homes, they're losing um, cars, uh, people are being shot, violence is, is just being wrecked everywhere, and it's all being blamed on situations that have nothing to do with what we just talked about at law. Okay, They're not even upset about you know any of the justice uh, that affects everyone day to day. They're angry to be angry. They have found a good reason to be angry, and they're angry. And so we can't really speak of what happened. All I can say is that in a system of law and order, it's inevitable that these types of things will happen, uh, you know, because when you're arresting a man presumed to be immoral, presumed to be unjust, presumed to be a bad person, uh, you think they will do other immoral and unjust and bad things. So you arrest them if they're acting in the way, in the way that's uncompliant. But of course, we've already laid out the case for that type of situation right there and, you know, needing to question, um, how that would, would play out just involves far too much information. And so, you know, I think that this is a great way for us to exercise Bible law, regardless of what your bias are or your um, thoughts are on this matter right now or how angry you are about what you see. I know, you know, watching these people destroy things makes me upset. And watching the way society's reacting makes me upset. Knowing the propensities of people um, and seeing it happen time and again uh, makes me upset to see it. But 
if you're honest with this situation, you have an objective standard of truth by the revelation of the word of God, the law of God, as it was given to Moses. And you can go back to that and you can use that to understand the correct response to this situation. It shows where the reforms in our society need to take place. Okay, it shows where they have to take place. But if we are unwilling to go to the law of God to understand the situation and to see what better society we could have, it's impossible for us to know how to fix it. It's just absolutely impossible. And so I hope that this uh, first uh, meaningful episode of Sola Scriptura has been... Um, interesting. I hope that it shows you the type of thing that I like to do. We're not going to just do this all the time, but, uh, you know, dealing with news and things like that. But, you know, this was such a good situation where you can just bypass all of the preconceived notion. You can just bypass all of the things, go straight to the law of God, start asking questions uh, from the actual evidence that we have on the complaint and, and evaluating it from a lawful standard, just seeing where it leads you. And where it leads us is to much deeper government and societal problems than um, what se what seems like it should be on its surface or what the emotion of the situation uh, tells us about. So thanks for joining me on this uh, episode of Solo Scriptura. I'm Joshua Somerville Lowther, and we will see you in two weeks. <laughs>